If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 11. 1 Corinthians and chapter 11. Once you get to 1 Corinthians 11, go ahead and jump down to verse 17, and we'll read verses 17 through 34, or 17 through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11. This is part 8 of our Dearest Place on Earth series where we've been exploring biblical church membership. Pray that it's been fruitful uh, for you and challenging thus far. Last week we began talking about ordinance of baptism. Today we're going to continue that by um, talking about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and then we'll partake in it after the sermon. Um, if you are a baptized believer, uh, we invite you to partake with us. If you didn't get your elements, there's still time. They're uh, right there on the welcome table um, for you to go grab those before we partake at the end of the sermon. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. We're going to read down to 34. I assume you're there by now, so let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the things, other things, I will give direction when I come. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you eat a meal that could potentially kill you? If so, how much would you pay for that risk? And even if it were free, would you still do it? Would you eat a meal that had the potential to kill you? Now, there are some risk takers who enjoy the thrill of eating delicacies that, if not prepared correctly, have a history of killing those who consume it. Let me give you a couple examples. In Japan, some people pay upwards of the equivalent of 200 American dollars for a single serving of puffer fish. It's so dangerous that chefs who serve it must be licensed after they go through two to three years of training, take an exam, and pay thousands of yen for the fish that they have to practice on and learn on how to prepare correctly. The puffer fish, if prepared improperly, 
is 200 times more deadly than cyanide. It contains tetrodotoxin, which numbs the mouth. I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly. Doctors can correct me. Which numbs the mouth, then leads to paralysis, and then death, and there's no antidote. The parts that go unused must be put in marked containers and then taken to be burned. According to the Japanese health minister, incorrectly prepared pufferfish has been found to be one of the most frequent causes of food poisoning in the country. Knowing that, would you give it a try? The other example of a meal that could potentially make one ill or even dead has nothing to do with the food itself. Rather, the ramifications of having an improper approach or disposition to the meal is what could lead to harmful effects. I'm talking, of course, about the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper. By whatever name you want to call it, the continuing rite of the church, the second of the two ordinances handed down by the king of the universe, is a serious matter. But like baptism that we talked about last week, I wonder if we realize the gravity of the ordinance. Do we see it as a special time to commune with the Lord and other believers? Do we expect the Lord to show up when we partake? Or do we see it like baptism as merely a symbol of which matters little how we approach, how we practice it, and if we miss it? When you consider the historical path that the practice of the Lord's Supper has taken, it makes some sense why evangelicals might see it as a mere symbol where nothing at all happens and its treatment has no real effect. I want you to consider for a moment the Lord's Supper historically, okay? Leading to the Reformation, the Catholic Church practiced what is called transubstantiation. And this is the belief that when the priest says the words of blessing in Latin over the bread and wine, that something mysterious happens where Jesus literally inhabits the elements, That is, they believed and believe to this day that the actual substance of the elements change after they are blessed and they become the literal body and blood of Jesus. They thus impart salvific blessing on those who partake. Surprisingly, reformer Martin Luther, who stood against the Catholic Church in many respects, taught something rather similar in what he called consubstantiation. Now, I want you to remember all these because there will be an exam after the service, okay? While he did not believe Christ inhabited the elements themselves, he did believe that Jesus was in, with, and under the bread and wine. He rejected transubstantiation, but he held to a view that was very similar. And this led to Luther entering a long and ugly clash with Ulrich Zwingli, who you might remember I briefly mentioned last week. Zwingli rejected both Catholic and Lutheran views and believed that nothing happened to or around the elements and that the Lord's Supper was simply a symbol or a memorial. And this led to Zwingli and his entourage meeting with Luther and his entourage in what is called the Colloquy of Marburg to discuss the topic and to try to find a resolution. And things got heated. And Luther even painted, this is my body on a table. And he slammed his fist repeatedly on it while shouting. And eventually they parted ways, never to be friends again. Zwingli tried to shake Luther's hand and Luther refused. And they even went so far as to instruct their followers to deny communion to the other followers. But the Zwinglian view is one that you'll see most often in less liturgical churches. 
the fear of making too much of the supper, the fear of buying into a mystical act like the Catholic Church has swung the pendulum all the way to the side of seeing the Lord's Supper as something somewhat unimportant, but not much more. It's, it's important, but it's not much more than a mere symbol. Now, I want to suggest a different way than all of those. And for this, let me quote John Hammond, who said it better than I can. He said, in some sense, the Lord's Supper does involve communion with or participation with Christ. See 1 Corinthians 10, 16. This affirmation of communion or participation carries with it the acceptance that Christ is, in some sense, present in the Lord's Supper. It is a place where God nourishes us. Christ is the host at the supper. He invites and indeed commands us to come. He feeds us just as he fed the disciples when he first instituted the supper. Or Michael Bird says, the Lord's Supper is an event where we experience God's presence and Christian fellowship in a way that we do nowhere else. So we can affirm both that the elements don't mystically transform into Christ's literal body and affirm that a special communion with God and his people does happen when taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Now, circle back to the opening illustration. Say you wanted to try puffer fish, or any delicacy that could kill you if not prepared correctly, but you weren't trying to go to Japan or wherever, and you somehow got your, your hands on a puffer fish, Okay. Would you, with the knowledge that you have about its lethality, prepare it flippantly, haphazardly, or lazily? Would you? Knowing the gravity and inerrant risk, would you take great care of how you prepared it and consumed it? Now, you consider what Paul says at the end of this passage that we read. He says that some in Corinth have failed to discern the body, failed to examine themselves properly, failed to treat the church with the respect and selflessness that Christ called them to, and that is why some, verse 30, are weak and ill, and some have died. But, says Paul, if you had approached the Lord's Supper properly, you would not have been disciplined in this way. If only they had treated the Lord's Supper with the respect that it deserves. If only they had seen that the way that they treat the church leading to taking the Lord's Supper matters greatly. You know, the peop- you know who the people who die most from pufferfish are? They're the people who get their hands on one and think they can prepare it like it's any other fish. And so they get sick or die. And you know who got sick and died in Corinth? People who supposed that they could treat God's people however they wanted and then come to the Lord's table like it was just any old meal in first century Rome. We are being shown here that we must treat the Lord's Supper with great care and this is inextricably tied to how we treat the church and this will become clear as we go along. Now, four points we're going to have together in the Lord, about the Lord's Supper and what it has to do with church membership in our time together. Four points. Number one, the Lord's Supper is a church act. The Lord's Supper is a church act. 
Now, last week, this is what we said about the ordinances. And this is going to be on the screen in case you wanted to write it down or missed it, okay? Baptism is the initiatory right into following Christ. And the Lord's Supper is the continuing right of ongoing faithfulness, okay? Baptism is the initiatory right into following Christ, and the Lord's Supper is the continuing right of ongoing faithful. In other words, baptism is a group-creating ritual, while the Lord's Supper is a group-sustaining or renewing ceremony. In our, in our next points, we're going to dive more into what's happening in context here in Corinth that led Paul to write this. But first, I want you to notice this in verses 17 through 20. Paul says three times, when you come together. Do you see it? If you look down at your text, verse 17, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. And he also mentions coming together in verse 34 as well. So we have yet again a sighting in the New Testament of the concept of biblical church membership. Paul expects them to do what? Gather. Isn't that clear? To come together what? As a church. Gathering is a necessary part of what it means to be a church and to be a church member. If we don't gather, we aren't a church. If we say we are a church member, but we never come to the gathering, we have an unbiblical at best and incoherent view of what it means to be a member. Just as considering 1 Corinthians 12's picture of the body and members and how being a member without physically being attached to the body does violence to the very word member, to say you are part of the church but you never come when it gathers as a church. Makes no sense. Clearly, the church gathers, right? You see that here. Right? I didn't sneak into your houses and put this in your Bible, did I? Paul expects them to literally and physically come together what? As a church. To be a member of a church without coming to the gathering is nonsensical in the biblical paradigm. It's a new invention. It's an American concept. It's a wish dream of what we have concocted in our minds that membership entails. As we've seen repeatedly in this series, membership in the church is distinct from membership in some voluntary organization or club. It entails much more than being on some list. It necessarily entails attachment, presence, gathering and responsibilities. And the Lord's Supper was given to the church to, in part, exercise the keys to the kingdom. By accepting members into the church, the keys are exercised because the church is saying about that person that, yes, as far as we can tell, this person is a Christian. When the church baptizes, they're using the keys and binding and loosing and saying, this person has given their allegiance to Christ and we take responsibility for oversight of their continued faithfulness. Now, when the church partakes in the Lord's Supper, they're saying that those who partake are faithfully striving to follow Christ and they ongoingly repent of their sins and covenant 
with the church. Michael Horton says it like this, through preaching, baptism, and admission or refusal of admission to communion, the keys of the kingdom are exercised. This is why the Lord's Supper is in part an act of discipline for the church. Because you'll remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians 5, that Paul is barring the unrepentant man from the Lord's table. He, he told the Corinthians that the man is in ongoing and unrepentant sin and is thus not welcome at the Lord's table. But why? Because through his actions, through his rejection of Christ's commands, the church cannot affirm his salvation. And this does not mean, again, that the church is saying that the man isn't saved. They don't have that kind of power. Rather, they're saying that they cannot affirm it based on the evidence of the man's life and walk. So those who are under discipline, those who are in unrepentant sin, those who have something against their brother, those who hold grudges, those treating the church improperly, should not take the Lord's Supper until they repent and are restored. The church has a responsibility for what is called fencing the table. They must protect the integrity of the Lord's Supper as well as protect those who should not partake from discipline from the Lord with the hopes that they will repent and be restored. And again, the Lord's Supper is an act of the church that gathers. You guys see that, right? It is not for camps or parachurch organizations or weddings or small groups or Sunday school classes or anything like that. The Lord's Supper is for the church to do together because only in the context of the church can the table be fenced. Only in the church can you discern the body. And it is, was given to the church to exercise the keys to the kingdom and to bind and loose under the authority of Christ. So the Lord's Supper is a church act. Number two, the Lord's Supper is an act of the church's unity. Number two, the Lord's Supper is an act of the church's unity. Now we must consider the context of this passage. Why is Paul writing this? What is going on here? Now this is before churches had dedicated buildings like this that they met in, right? So they met in homes. Well, only the wealthy, as you can imagine, and well-to-do members had homes large enough for the church to gather in. And the food they were to eat together was the good stuff, right? So it was meats and fresh fruits and vegetables and good wine. In other words, it was food the wealthy basically ate all the time, all right? Well, the poor members lived in these apartment-type buildings where your kitchen was your living room, was your bedroom. And they ate basically the same meal every day if they ate, like a porridge, maybe some bread, occasionally fish, maybe some cheap wine. And that's, again, if they ate at all. Sometimes they go days without eating. In other words, the only day that the poor members of the church at Corinth and their families could eat good food was when they gathered with the church, okay? So what happened here? The wealthy members would get to the gathering early while the poor members were still at work. And they would eat up all the food and they would drink all the wine and by the time the poor members showed up, the food was gone. And the wealthy people were drunk, right? The wealthy members treated the gathering the way that they would treat a Roman banquet 
where the wealthy people got the good stuff and the poor and slaves were relegated to another room with leftovers. And Paul is rebuking the Corinthians, literally shaming them because they mistreat their brothers and sisters through their actions. They're still operating by worldly standards instead of how Jesus calls them to behave. You see what Paul says in verse 18? He says, I believe it, in my translation, he says, I believe it in part. It isn't that Paul doesn't believe it, it's that such division is a monstrous violation of Christian unity. It's almost unbelievable that to Paul that someone could bear the name Christ and treat their fellow members this way. Ben Witherington says, the function of mock disbelief is to shame the audience since it implies that behavior in question is so inappropriate that the report of its occurrence should not be true and that a charitable person would hardly credit such a report. Therefore, says Paul, whatever you're doing when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. Do you see that he says that? I don't know what you're doing. It's not the Lord's Supper you take. When a church comes to the Lord's table and they aren't united, they're not taking the Lord's Supper. They're just having a snack. Can you imagine, uh, let's illustrate this, how preposterous it would be if we announced we were having a meal here at the church, okay? But everyone had to bring their W-2. And we were going to have like a doorman who checked the W-2 at the door. And in the worship center, we set up these nice tables, fancy tablecloths, nice china. We serve filet mignon. And this was for those who made a certain amount of money or more that we verified on their W-2. Those who made below that line would be set back in some dimly lit back room where they were served ramen noodles, which I like, by the way, but stale crackers and expired cheese Whiz while they sat on the floor. Then in the worship center, we talked about how the creator God entered flesh and died a sacrificial death for the undeserving. This would be an outrageous, right, and contradictory violation of community and opposed to the kingdom ethic of Christ. Right? Is that fair to say? That's basically what the Corinthians were doing. They wanted to show who were the haves and have-nots. And Paul shames them for it because they are shaming and humiliating the poorer members with their actions. Paul says that there are divisions among them, and this shows that they do not take the Lord's Supper when they come together, even if they think they are. The Lord's Supper is a uniting action. It speaks profoundly to the church's unity. It vividly, like baptism, pictures the gospel and the sacrificial death of Christ. And since Christ's death creates a people and tears down walls of division to be divided as a church while taking the Lord's Supper means at best you are not taking the Lord's Supper. And at worst means you are attempting to re-crucify Christ. Why do I say that? That sounds harsh, doesn't it? Notice that Paul injects in the middle of this discussion a recalling of the institution of the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper. Notice how Paul mentions that it was on the night when Christ was betrayed that he instituted this ordinance. Why would he mention that? Why mention that he was betrayed? Why didn't he say, on the night when Christ prayed in the garden? Or on the night when Jesus stood trial? Or on the night before Jesus' crucifixion? 
why of all things in this little space, of all the things that happened on that weekend, does Paul mention that Jesus was betrayed? And why does he say those who partake in an unworthy manner are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord? Why does he say they drink judgment on themselves? This is why. Because those who divide the church, those who bring their division to the Lord's table, those who believe their status in the world or wealth should give them first place in the church, stand with the betrayer, Judas, with their actions. Do you not see that here? Is Paul not saying that those who divide the church, those who abuse the body, are partaking in an unworthy manner? Doesn't he say that? And thus are guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. They are joining Judas in betraying the Lord of glory for a bag of silver. They are standing with the Roman crucifiers mocking Christ at the cross. Witherington says this, some of the Corinthian Christians are eating without taking cognizance of their brothers and sisters. They are thus guilty of standing on the side of those who abused and killed Christ, an atrocious sacrilege. That's what is done when division and abuse of the church is brought to the Lord's table. And maybe you've been here this whole series, and you're thinking, why do we keep talking about unity and division? Must we keep talking about them? Maybe you're just tired. I'm tired of hearing about this. But here's why we keep talking about it, okay? For one, nearly every text, right, <laughs> that we've looked at, has something to say about it. And two, I don't pastor some other church. I pastor this church, and this church has a history of division, which you know, which is why it makes us so uncomfortable to talk about it, right? I mean, even our structures exacerbated division from having two worship services based on genre to having classes based on age and gender, and you and I both want to move forward and not live in the past, but first we have to see how vile and Christ-denying division in the church is lest we reproduce or fail to recognize when it percolates and never learn. We have to stop with the flowery language and see that Scripture itself calls division in the body a lack of remembrance of Christ's selfless death and a betrayal of the Lord of glory. The act of the Lord's Supper itself is a declaration, a proclamation of unity in Christ. So to do it while the unity is not present is to profane the sacrament. If you have your Bible open and you just look up to chapter 10, okay? Look what it says starting in verse, look at 16 and 17, okay, of chapter 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is how many breads? There is one bread, we who are many are how many bodies? One body. For we all partake of the one bread. He says when we partake in the one cup 
and the one bread, we do so as a sign that though we are many, we're actually one because we're members of the one body, no more or less important than others. And even if there is diversity, we put that aside in some respects for the sake of the mission and unity of Christ. Augustine, over a thousand years ago in his sermon on 1 Corinthians 10, said this. He said, one bread. What is this one bread? The one body which we, being many, are. Remember that bread is not made from one grain, but from many. Be what you can see and receive what you are. So too with the wine. Brothers and sisters, just remind yourselves what wine is made from. Many grapes hang in the bunch, but the juice of the grapes is poured together in one vessel. That too is how the Lord Christ signified us, how he wished us to belong to him, how he consecrated the sacrament of our peace and unity on his table. Any who receive the sacrament of unity and do not hold the bond of peace do not receive the sacrament for their benefit, but a testimony against themselves. Now, back to chapter 11, notice how Paul twice says that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do you see it? Verse 24, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. You know what's interesting about this? None of the Gospels have Jesus saying this twice during the Last Supper. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean he didn't. Paul says he was handed, he handed to them what he received, meaning he's telling them tradition that was passed on to him and he's passed it on to them. But Paul emphasizes twice that to partake in the Lord's Supper means to reenact Christ's sacrificial death and remembering entails corresponding actions, okay? So, see, we might think of remembering as mere mental recall. But biblically speaking, remembering meant recall combined with actions based on that recall, okay? So a natural illustration for us is the holiday of this weekend, right? Memorial Day. How do most Americans celebrate Memorial Day? (laughs) By like going to the beach or lake or having a barbecue or going on a trip or generally taking advantage of the fact that they have a three-day weekend combined with school is out. Is that fair to say? That's how most Americans celebrate Memorial Day. Now, I'm not denigrating those things, okay? But doing those things is not actually in the spirit of what Memorial Day was intended to do, okay? Memorial Day was created in order for people to remember the military dead, And remember those who they knew that died in service of the country. And then they actually physically went to their graves. And they decorated them with flowers and such. And then they would recite prayers, which is why this is originally called Decoration Day. So, in other words, it was meant to both be a recalling of people who died and then a corresponding action in light of that remembering. Do you see? Somehow, making sandcastles and playing in the water is not exactly a remembrance of the military dead. It isn't the somber reflection followed by actions that it was created to be. Again, there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but they don't have anything to do with Memorial Day to speak of. Paul twice mentions remembering Jesus' sacrificial death because doing so was supposed to lead to sacrificial actions. 
remembering that Jesus voluntarily died for the sake of others should lead Christians to voluntarily getting over themselves and sacrificially serving and thinking of others before themselves, which is a uniting act. Witherington says, the function of reciting the sacred tale about the night when Jesus was betrayed was to encourage united behavior and social leveling. Those overcoming factionalism and creating harmony in the congregation. Hammett adds this, in the biblical sense, remembrance is more than a mental exercise. It involves a realization of what is remembered. This is seen in the way we remember. It's not by recalling or thinking, but by reenacting and doing. So those who have an entitlement mentality, those who desire special treatment, those who mistreat the church, those who divide the church, and then take the Lord's Supper show through their actions that they don't know what they're doing when they take the Lord's Supper. Do you see? They show they haven't actually remembered the Lord's death. They show that they do not understand what the Lord did, and they show that they haven't let settle in their hearts that they are to allow the Lord's Supper to launch them into behavior and tangible actions that are decidedly others-oriented. This leads us to our third point, number three. The Lord's Supper is an act of discerning, okay? The Lord's Supper is an act of discerning. Now, if you're like me, you grew up thinking that verse 27 and 28 essentially meant that before we take the Lord's Supper, we need to make sure we didn't have any unrepented sin in our lives, right? So, like, we need to sort of super repent before the Lord's Supper, and that the act of taking the Lord's Supper was sort of an internal reflection. Is this how you guys were, were kind of brought up to believe? Internal kind of action, reflection of self-examination about how I as an individual lived, right? It, it was sort of created like a room full of individuals in separate phone booths, okay? Kids, if you don't know what phone booths are, ask your parents after service, okay? But this, that is not at all what Paul is saying here, Okay? Look what he actually says, okay? Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy what? Do you see that? Manner, verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks what? Without discerning the body. You see that? So Paul does not at all mean that those who are themselves unworthy cannot partake of the Lord's Supper. Because guess what? No one is in themselves worthy of taking the Lord's Supper. Only Jesus was worthy. No person is worthy in themselves to come to the Lord's table. If worthiness of person were the issue, what room is there for grace? The fact that we former rebels can approach the Lord's table at all is an act of grace because we're all unworthy people. Rather, Paul says that it is the manner in which you take the Lord's Supper that is at issue. So it is not worthiness of the person, but manner in which they take it. What is taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? At minimum, it's to take it while you have something against a brother or sister. It's to take it while you're divided. It's to take it while you are fighting amongst yourselves. It's to take it while you have a death grip on your grudges and unforgiveness. It's to take it while you are trying to have 
primary place of the body. It's to take it while you are self-aggrandizing. It's to take it while not considering others more important than yourself. Thus, when Paul says to examine yourself when you take the Lord's Supper, it isn't that you examine whether or not you have sin, okay? That's something you should do on an ongoing basis so you can repent of it and kill it every day. Rather, you are to examine yourself, verse 29, while you discern the body. In other words, when you partake and leading up to partaking, you are to examine yourself. This is important. This is key, okay? Examine yourself in relation to the church. Ask yourself, how do I treat the church? How do I treat my brothers and sisters that I've covenanted with? Am I working diligently and urgently to maintain unity? Am I selfish or selfless towards them? Do I put them before myself or do I insist on first place? Do I use my gifts to be seen or to edify? Do I sacrificially give of myself to them for their good and God's glory? Do I love them unconditionally or does my love, presence, and participation come with conditions? Do I see myself as a member equal to other members and thus use my spiritual gift for the sake of the mission of Christ? See, discerning the literal body of Christ, which was executed on a Roman cross as a substitute for you, should lead to discern the body of Christ, the church, that his death and resurrection created. If one rightly discerns the death of the Son of God on their behalf, remembering the night when he was betrayed and the subsequent three days, then coming to the body of the church with anything less than selfless focus with corresponding action makes no sense. The Corinthians were entering the church. Do you see this? With the posture of entitlement, weren't they? Do you see that? They had an entitlement mentality. They were thinking since they were well-to-do since they had worldly status and acclaim, since the ethics of the world said they mattered more than the poorer members, that they ought to be treated better. Don't you see that? And get away with more. They they thought since they were who they were, that they could eat up all the food and get drunk in the assembly, and they thought they were more important. That's what they did with their spiritual gifts too. Do you know that? They thought they needed to be seen for their gifts. If you, you know, after church, just go read verse, chapters 12 through 14. All deal with that in 1 Corinthians. They wanted first place. They wanted to be up front. They wanted people to be impressed by them, and they wanted preferential treatment because of who they were. That entitlement mentality permeates churches today too, doesn't it? Do you think it does? It might not even necessarily be based on wealth or status, though sometimes, of course, it is, but can just be based on the individualistic nature of human pride and the worldly ethics that are fed to us through every medium. And this entitlement mentality says, I'm a church member, which is accompanied by the assumption that we ought to have privileges, perks, and power, and thinking that the church owes us rather than saying, I'm a church member accompanied with responsibilities and other directed service and focus. It's like we talked about a few weeks ago. The entitlement mentality treats church membership like a contract rather than a covenant. It comes with conditions, and 
is easily broken and asks, what can others become for me? Rather than having the covenantal posture of unconditional present commitment that asks, what can I be and become for the church to help others grow? And this entitlement mentality that the Corinthians have is wreaking havoc on the church. And it wreaks havoc on churches even today. Membership and a correct posture towards Lord's Supper means to humble oneself, to focus on others, to remember we're part of one another, and to turn our attention away from self and to others as we stoop, as Christ stooped, as Philippians 2 so vividly showed us. And this is what double remembering that Paul mentioned should do for us, shouldn't it? To think of the self-emptying and stooping and obeying nature of Christ ought to do what? Lead to the same Christ-like actions in us. You know, if you were to go to Bethlehem today, you could visit a church called the Church of the Nativity, which, by the way, is curated by Palestinian Christians, just for your gee whiz. Now, if you were to visit the church where they say Jesus was born or nearabouts, okay, you'd encounter this wall with a door so low that you would have to stoop to enter the church on the other side. You would have to get on your knees to enter, and it's called the door of humility. Isn't there something beautifully poetic about that? Jesus stooped to get to us, didn't he? Which is by entering flesh. And we can only come to him by stooping, by admitting our weakness, our inability to save ourselves, and thus admitting his greatness, his sacrificial work on, our, on the behalf of undeserving wretches like us. And we should ponder that and remember what he did and then come into the church with the same stooping posture in likeness of our king eager to give ourselves over to one another. When we do that, we are taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. When we do that, we are discerning both the physical body of the Lord crucified and raised and the body of the church. Greg Allison puts it well when he says, the self-assessment is not for searching out remaining sins. This should be confessed and repented of promptly, not accumulated and dismissed quickly and inconsiderately before sharing the Lord's Supper. Rather, the self-examination is specifically for the purpose of detecting broken relationships, division-causing behavior, disrespect, and mistreatment of brothers and sisters in Christ. If self-assessment reveals these problems, the Christian should refrain from participating in the Lord's Supper and act decisively and promptly to rectify the mistreatment of others and reconcile broken relationships. Churches who encourage their members to prepare for the ordinance ahead of time by acting swiftly to mend divisions do them a great service. For such members may look ahead joyfully and with great anticipation to their worthy participation in the upcoming celebration. Now before we move on to our last point, I just want to note one more thing, okay? Does not the fact that you must discern the body also point to biblical membership and the fact that only Christians should be participating in the Lord's Supper. If you aren't a Christian, you simply cannot discern the body. It, it isn't possible. Without the indwelling spirit, you have no spiritual discernment to speak of anyway. And without the indwelling spirit, you aren't part of the body either universally or locally. 
But I would want to ask those who refuse to join and commit to a church and those who are members of a church they do not attend. I want to ask them the same question. How do you discern the body if you aren't a member of a local church? And how do you discern the body of a church you never go to? How can you discern your treatment of the church when you aren't actually with the church? And for those who simply do not attend the gatherings, I want to know the same thing I would ask someone who refused to be baptized. If the Lord ordained these two ordinances, why are you disobeying him? Doesn't it follow that the fact that we are called to discern the body means we are actively participating and committed to the body? Doesn't it? How else can we discern it? I mean, if someone told me to think about my relation to the members of First Baptist Church, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and to think about the individuals in that church, I couldn't do it. You know why? (laughs) I've never been to Sheboygan, even though I like saying it. I've never been to Wisconsin. I don't know a single member there. I'm not a member there, and so I can't discern them. I can pray for them in the abstract, but I can't discern rightly, can I? So to obey this passage rightly, to take the Lord's Supper correctly, I must be present active, and committed. Now, we here at FBC allow those who have been baptized and are Christians who are not under discipline at another church to partake. But we encourage you to join the church and commit and stay and thus discern the body when we come to the Lord's table. Okay, our fourth and final point. The Lord's Supper is a serious act. The Lord's Supper is a serious act. Now, hopefully, this is clear by now, right? But it bears emphasizing and repeating. Chapter 10 says that when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we participate in the blood and body of Christ. And the corporate nature of the supper in chapter 11 reveals that when we partake, we're communing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So it cannot be that this is a mere symbol. When we partake, we're communing both with Christ and one another. And while we don't believe that Jesus literally inhabits the bread and drink, he is present with us when we partake. And so is the Holy Spirit, not only indwelling each believer, but amongst us, binding us together. No, the elements do not change before or during the Lord's Supper, but something special is happening. It can't be said that this is just another event, just another additive to our service, just another thing we do. Something unique and special is happening because when we partake in a worthy manner, we are obeying Christ, and God typically blesses obedience, doesn't he? If it weren't special, if it weren't important, why would Paul even bother writing what he does here, and why would he say the things that he does. I mean, there are hard things in this text, aren't they? Why would he say, verse 31, that we must judge ourselves truly so that we will not be judged? Why would he make it clear that this time is not a time of posturing or self-deception, but that it's a time of honest introspection to examine how we relate to the body of the church? Why would he say that if we don't, that we may, verse 29, be drinking and eating judgment? And why would... The God, why would God literally make people ill 
or even take them out in divine discipline if it didn't matter how we approached or took the Lord's Supper. This is a serious matter, and it's a matter of obedience for us as individuals and as a church. It is a means by which we act like the church. Because we are saying to everyone who partakes that we believe they are kingdom people, striving towards unity and faithfulness. Taking the Lord's Supper helps remind us that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, and it is a covenant renewal of sorts telling our fellow members that we remember what we've covenanted to be and do with them and that we will continue to strive for their good and God's glory as we consider them more important than ourselves. This is what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. And let me ask this. When we partake in a few minutes, how will you be partaking? Will you be partaking in a worthy or an unworthy manner? You consider what we're doing, and the text says we must, at minimum, do the following four things when we take. We must look back at the life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection, and ascension of Christ. We must, too, look ahead, verse 26, to the future when Christ returns and brings the kingdom in fullness, when he will judge the living and the dead, when he will make all things new, when he will make every sad thing come untrue. We must, three, Look within and examine ourselves and our identity in Christ. And we must look around at our brothers and sisters in the church and examine how we relate to them and treat to them. Then we can partake. And we allow all of this to spur us on into actions in light of it in our day-to-day lives. In other words, like we remember our baptism, we remember what we did in the Lord's Supper and let it inform us. And when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming, did you see that? Proclaiming Christ to one another and to the world. As baptism proclaims one initial allegiance to Christ, the Lord's Supper proclaims one's ongoing allegiance to Christ. We proclaim our unworthiness, but Christ's worthiness. We proclaim that we have given our allegiance to Christ above all other claimants. We proclaim that we rest in the past, present, and future work of Christ. We proclaim that we do not recognize the social and economic structures of the world, but instead function by the kingdom ethic of Christ for one another. We proclaim that we have hope in a glorious future with our King and Savior, where the burdens of our world will be shed and we will dwell with one another in the presence of our triune God forevermore. We proclaim that we are more than conquerors through Christ, and nothing at all can separate us from his love, no matter what. We proclaim that we love one another with the unconditional love that sets us apart from every organization in the world. We proclaim that we will consider one another as more important than ourselves, that we will love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, that we will commit to the gathering, that we will commit to one another, and that we will oversee one another's walk with the Lord. And we proclaim that we have no king but Jesus and that he is the only hope for the world, and we match our actions to our proclamation through obedience to Christ and love and good deeds in relation with one another in our daily lives. 